0: Welcome to Deckert's Liborcast, where industry leaders come to talk Libor transition. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Deckert Liborcast. This is the eighth in our series. I'm Matt Hayes, your host. I'm a partner in our Global Finance Group and chair of the Deckert Libor Task Force. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Desmond from our Global Finance Group here at Deckert, and our special guest Meredith Coffee from the LSTA. Meredith, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: The LSTA has taken the lead on the LIBOR transition in the loan market. How would you describe that process and your role in the transition?
1: Uh, Very painfully, generally. But yes, the LSTA has been very involved uh, in LIBOR cessation since basically the middle toward the end of 2017. I um, co-chair our public policy group, but more importantly for LIBOR transition, um, I'm on the ARC itself, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee. I co-chair the ARC's business loans working group. We spun out an operations subgroup. We work on documentation and operationalizing SOFAR in that group. So it's been a two-and-a-half-year journey. We've got about 500 more days to get to the end of it, and uh, we will hopefully get there smoothly.
2: So, Meredith, starting with the top-level takeaways, for anyone who we only get for the first five minutes or so of the podcast who just tunes into mm-hmm. the beginning, now what's the one thing that you wish people in the market knew or were thinking about, but, you know, may not be currently, What you know, what is the the highest level priority message that you would want to get out there?
1: The highest level priority is, you know, for goodness sakes, you know, LIBOR is likely to end around the end of 2021. That's 500 days from now. So for heaven's sakes, you know, don't ignore this. We're really getting to crunch time now. Maybe as a little bit of background, why do we say this? People need to remember that LIBOR is published only because LIBOR Submitting banks make LIBOR submissions. And many of them don't like making those submissions. They've been sued for for submitting LIBOR incorrectly. So the FCA in the UK has gotten banks to agree to submit LIBOR through the end of 2021. Have not agreed to submit thereafter. Bearing that in mind, you know, there is no guarantee that will exist after the end of 2021. The UK regulators have said this. US regulators have said this. The ARC has said this. There are all these red lines out there. So with all these red flags, why would folks bet their business on the vague hope that work continues? That's the one takeaway. Have to work it with the end of 2021 as the baseline.
2: So with that in mind, the LSTA works with a number of different constituencies in the loan market and from different angles, you know, that you're seeing this from what parts of the market do you think are further along in preparing for the transition and, you know, who if anyone still hasn't caught on if any if that does describe anyone?
1: Sure. Two major universes that I'm looking at, CLOs and loans. As we start out, CLOs are further ahead documentation-wise, in part because they have to and in part because it's easier for CLOs. Um, But loans are beginning to get some serious traction, and it's really hard to see the traction that's taking place unless you're in the weeds. So maybe we should get into the weeds. Taking a step back, in late 2017, that's when we really figured out that LIBOR was likely to end around the end of 2021. Before that, No one had conceived of the fact that LIBOR could go away, and no one really put permanent LIBOR cessation language in their loan or CLO documentation. So before the end of 2017 or the beginning of 2018, most documents are silent on LIBOR cessation. For CLOs, those pre-2018 CLOs are kind of stuck, unless they're amended, which isn't super easy. In general, the liabilities, the liabilities will fall back to the last quoted LIBOR, and they will in effect be stuck in a fixed rate instrument. So pre-2018 CLOs are kind of stuck unless people can get an amendment pushed through. Starting in early 2018, however, CLOs began to put in a variety of what we call amendment fallback language in the documents, but it's pretty idiosyncratic. It basically says if LIBOR ceases, there'll be some way to amend this document going forward. In mid-2019, the ARC released what we call hardwired securitization fallback language, which instead of using an amendment approach, starts hardwiring the approach that says, if LIBOR ceases, then here's a waterfall of rates you would go to. So it sets up the hardwired at the beginning of the uh, CLO. In second half of 2019, we saw more large investors beginning to use hardwired fallback language in the CLOs or requiring the use of hardwired fallbacks. And by first half 2020, or by now we think a large majority of, uh, CLOs are using hardwired fallbacks. So that's good progress. When we look at, it at that level, you know, CLOs are really kind of ahead of where loans were. But if we look at loans, loans were kind of lucky and kind of unlucky. So the reason I say that is loan language already kind of had a fallback to a prime base rate if LIBOR ceased to exist. So they already had all loans through history kind of had a fallback already built in if LIBOR wasn't around. But secondly, loans are more easily amended than any securities and CLO notes. And because loans are more easily amended, they felt that they had less pressure to go hardwired. So what people in the loan market did was say, yeah, we'll just use the amendment fallback. And they kept doing amendment fallbacks, more and more amendment fallbacks up until about now. While, yes, loans are more easily amended, that means there could be a huge slew of or cessation amendments right around LIBOR cessation, and this could completely clog up the system. So even though loans are more flexible and are in a better place in general, trying to get all these amendments done at LIBOR cessation will be challenging. The one good thing I would say around this though is we are beginning to see hardwired fallbacks emerge in the loan space. That is positive news because they will be easier to effectuate.
0: Moving to the specifics of the transition and fallbacks, LSTA has focused on daily simple SOFR as a replacement rate. Uh, Why does that make sense for the loan market and why should participants be using it?
1: Sure. Um, Give you our philosophical view and then I'll take you through the challenges of the past two years and how we got here. Now, to be fair, everybody really wants forward-looking term SOFR. Um, forward-looking term SOFR is very much like LIBOR. It's known in advance of the interest period. You know, it acts like LIBOR. It would be a very easy fix. Here's the problem. We can't be sure that forward-looking term SOFR will exist at LIBOR cessation, so we need to be ready to use other rates. So what other rates are those? Well, for a long time, folks assumed that SOFR compounding arrears would be the default rate because that is what derivatives are doing. And we assumed that that would be the rate we would go to in the loan market also if term SOFR wasn't available. But then we drilled in. We started actually having operationalization workshops. Um, we had uh, whiteboarding sessions, which we actually all called waterboarding sessions because they were that difficult. And we started doing a lot of math. And we figured out two key things. First of all, the first thing we figured out was The economic difference between simple SOFR and compounded SOFR is minuscule. It is tiny. So the economic difference for the basis was extraordinarily small. The second thing we figured out was operationalizing compounded SOFR for a tradable, prepayable loan universe was extraordinarily hard. So the economics were the same. We could operationalize simple SOFR much more easily. And then ultimately, it made sense for the loan market uh, to opt to simple SOFR if term sofer didn't exist. So that's kind of the history of how to that thought process.
0: So now that a simpler approach is available, should market participants begin executing amendments? Or those that have the amendment approach, should they be putting that hardwired fallback of daily simple SOFR in their documents?
1: Well, we're definitely moving forward. Um, so what I would say To give a little more background, after we did two years of hard math and operationalization, we determined we needed daily simple SOFR as the second step in the hardwired waterfall for loans. So how did we get there? Well, as I mentioned before, the LSTA co-chairs the ARC's business loans working group. In the spring and the summer, we worked to refresh the ARC hardwired fallback for loans. We published it in June, and the hardwired fallbacks now reference simple SOFR as the second step in the hardwired fallback. So now we're beginning to see people use hardwired fallbacks in the loan space. They have simple SOFR as a second step. Will all the people who did an amendment redo their amendment fallbacks, put in hardwired fallbacks? Doubt it. I don't think they will. What I do think they will do is if for some reason they're refinancing their loan um, or reopening it, they may stick the hardwired in at that point. Or if in 2021 they're refinancing the loan, they might just go to SOFR directly. But I do think that allows us to begin to move forward and break the logjam that we have been facing.
0: How about CLOs? Uh, What will they do?
1: I think this is interesting. So CLOs obviously have had very bad experiences historically with one month, three month LIBOR basis, right? So if you go back a couple of years, there was like a 40 basis point differential between one month and three month LIBOR. And people are like, oh, my God, basis risk is terrible. I never, ever, ever want to have basis risk again. So that's a very legitimate concern. What happens, though, is when we bring the math to people and we show people how simple SOFR and compounded SOFR have performed over the last 21 years, so it's not like we're looking at a short period of time, and it's not like we're looking at only a low-rate environment, they figure out that, oh, the basis between simple and compounded SOFR is very low, and in fact, that basis is so low, the risk I'm taking on by going compound it probably costs me more than whatever I'm giving up in simple SOFR. Um, So I think a lot of people have figured out that basis risk isn't that worrisome. However, I've definitely heard that more CLOs recently have been coming out with simple SOFR as a second step in the hardwired waterfall um, with the idea that, you know, frankly, that perfectly aligns with what loans are likely to do. And presumably no basis is better than just having a tiny basis. So we are definitely seeing more CLOs go to simple SOFR in the second step.
0: So you, you've mentioned term SOFR. Uh, what's the probability? Will it happen? When will it happen?
1: My answer is I simply don't know. Um, I'd like to think I know everything, but if I knew everything, you know, I'd probably be out doing other things at this point. Many people do think term SOFR will happen, um, but you have to bear in mind how you get to having a forward-looking term SOFR curve. SOFR is an overnight rate. It's an overnight treasury repo rate. To really build a forward-looking term sofa curve, you need sofa futures to trade actively. And once you have sofa futures that trade actively, then you can bootstrap a forward-looking term sofa curve. But you need a lot of sofa futures activity to happen. So many people feel that this activity, the sofa derivatives volume will increase substantially and that a robust forward-looking term reference rate can be built. So I am hopeful it will be built, but hope is not a plan. Um, If you're wondering when this might occur, um, the ARC is aiming for 2021 for a forward-looking term SOFR to be built. In fact, their objectives earlier this year suggested first half 2021. I think that is aspirational. It would be great if we had a forward-looking term SOFR curve that was fit for purpose in 2021 because then we could fall back to, you know, a forward-looking term rate, Loans and CLOs would be perfectly aligned. We'd know the rate in advance of the interest period. Operationalization would be much easier. All that sort of stuff would be much easier. But since we don't know it will exist, we can't put all our eggs in that basket, and we have to have contingencies in place.
0: And the ARC currently has an RFP out on term sofer and creating it. Are, are you involved in that, or do you think we'll get some favorable responses to that?
1: I'm actually not involved in that, and I'm not involved in that because I'm on the advisory board of one firm actually working to put in a bid, so I've recused myself from the RFP process, so I know what's in the public domain, and that's all. But the ARC did put out an RFP in September. They are looking for responses by the end of October. If you look at the RFP, there's a lot of focus on methodology and ensuring the methodology remains robust um, in all economic environments, so we are hopeful that that will be successful, but again you know, we can't put all our eggs in that basket.
2: So Meredith, we've talked a lot about where things stand with the replacement rate itself and the larger market, but in terms of what people listening to this podcast should be thinking about, you know, what do you think the market participants should be thinking when they're looking at their own portfolios? And you know, obviously this depends on where you sit in the market, but, you know, first of all, what about players in the syndicated loan market?
1: Well, I think we need to get past denial and anger. So that that's the first thing we need to do. And we need to start going get past bargaining and start going to acceptance and planning. So we are recommending, certainly in the loan space and in the CLO space, that people start developing a remediation plan. How do they do that? Well, the first thing is to know what's in your portfolio. So when we look at the loan market, we see really four cohorts or four baskets of loans that people need to think about. And we kind of tied this into generally into date ranges. So if you look at loans that were originated prior to 2018, as I mentioned before, you know, these loans are likely to fall back to a prime based rate and that will be a higher cost to the borrower. Um, if these loans have not been refinanced before the end of 2021, that probably means the borrower is unable to refinance them. The borrower might be in distress. So we could have a situation with those loans that The borrower may be already under financial pressure, and you could see a situation where there's more defaults for this reason. Now, you might say, well, how much is that? That's probably not that big a portfolio. But in fact, when I was looking at the S&P LSTA Leverage Loan Index, I was able to track about $180 billion of loans in the category of, you know, was originated in 2018 and hasn't been touched since. So it's not immaterial. The second category of loans I would break it into, really kind of two buckets. The first are the loans that were done between the beginning of 2018 and basically now. Those generally have some form of amendment fallback in them. Um, And it's about $990 billion loan. So also, again, not a small number. Now, typically, the way an amendment fallback works in the loan space is that LIBOR ceases, the borrower and agent identifier replacement rate, potentially also a spread adjustment, and required lenders typically have a negative consent period. What's going to happen there? If you have a bunch of loans that fall back through an amendment process at LIBOR cessation, you're going to have a whole bunch of amendments coming at you very, very quickly. You need to know what are the loans that have the amendment fallback language in them. What does that amendment fallback language say? Will you be asked to, you know, object or not? And will you decide to object or not? People need to know that for each of those $990 billion of loans. So I think those loans need to be tracked. In addition, um, another set of these loans are fallbacks with early opt-in triggers. So what an early opt-in trigger in a loan says is that basically if five deals are being done on SOFR or being originated or amended to SOFR in the loan market, then a loan that has an opt-in trigger can switch to SOFR, assuming there's no objection from the required lenders. Well, what does this mean for someone who holds loans? Well, we do expect loans to start being done on SOFR sometime in 2021. So at some point in 2021, we'll hit that five loan trigger, which will allow many loans to use an opt-in trigger to switch to SOFR if the borrower and agent agree to do so. So if you hold those loans, you need to know that to switch to SOFR prior to LIBOR cessation. So you need to track that as far as your cash flows are concerned. And you also need to determine whether you would consent to that amendment as well. And then finally, the fourth bucket I would flag is hardwired fallbacks. We're beginning to see those emerge. And what they will do is at law or cessation, they will go to a waterfall of fallbacks and can be amended more rapidly. And that's the fourth bucket that we're suggesting that uh, lenders track. So again, need to get in and need to look very granularly at your portfolio.
2: That's a lot of information for the loan market. I'd like to ask you to do that whole thing again now for the CLO market, because obviously I think that the documentation there, you know, a lot of these features are similar in CLOs, but then a lot of them differ. And so the ways that the waterfalls work may be different, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so what should you track there? Well, again, like your pre-2018 CLOs. Right now, those probably toggle to a fixed rate. If LIBOR is not quoted, you just use last quoted LIBOR, boom, they go fixed rate. Importantly to know there, there could be winners and losers there. There could be litigation around that. So it's important to track those notes, try to figure out where the investors are on them, and also track the New York State legislation where the ARC is trying to fix securities that do not have adequate fallback language. Uh, The second category is, of course, Roughly 2018 through the first half of 2019, you have amendment fallbacks in CLOs. And I think to your point, I think this language tends to be fairly idiosyncratic. There's a lot of varieties of it. So I think it's important that people understand sort of how and why and when a CLO note would fall back to a particular rate. Um, in second half 2019, I think the market was beginning to use hardwired fallbacks, but it's by no means uniform. I think by now... Most people are using hardwired fallbacks. It's important to track what percent of your portfolio are using hardwired fallbacks. And then if you are using a hardwired fallback, exactly what does the waterfall look like? The waterfall almost definitely has forward-looking term SOFR at the top of the waterfall. But then when you go to the second step of the waterfall, is that simple SOFR or compounded SOFR? I think that's important to know. And then the final thing I would say is that um, many CLOs have a, you know, pre-cessation switching mechanism that basically says when 50% of the assets go to a replacement rate like SOFR, then the liabilities can switch to that replacement rate. Then you really need to keep an eye on what's going on with your portfolio, your assets, because, you know, there's going to be loans that are going to go to SOFR prior to LIBOR cessation um, while the CLO liabilities remain on LIBOR. Um, So you're going to have a series of loans that start switching to SOFR once it hits a 50 percent level a number of CLOs then will toggle their liabilities from LIBOR to SOFR but then you're going to have a situation where you have a number of loans on LIBOR and your liabilities are on SOFR so there is going to be this sort of LIBOR SOFR basis most likely for a number of CLOs kind of as we transition toward LIBOR cessation so that's a lot to keep in mind for CLOs as well.
2: And one thing I would add to that, actually, is that if you look at those waterfalls, and particularly the ones that still have compounding SOFR in them, a lot of those waterfalls have an additional feature that says, basically, it's the first rate that you can choose in the waterfall. That is also the rate that is being used in 50% of your assets. And so if you do have a waterfall that has compounding SOFR in it, but the assets all of a sudden are now going to daily simple SOFR, that may not actually be
1: caught. Right. So more complexity. And there's climbing the waterfall and the loans and CLOs. And there's a lot of uh, optionality out there.
0: So how do you see all this developing in 2021 as we get closer to implementation?
1: Well, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are not going to sleep a lot. <laughs> it's the first step. As I look at this in the loan space, here's what I'm thinking will happen, and here's what I'm hoping will happen. So as we get closer to 2021, I think the key thing is, Will loans be originated on SOFR? Because that drives a whole different set of waterfalls and activities. So basically what I could see happening as we move into 2021, as we move through the first half of 2021, I could start seeing a slow start, but start seeing a few loans being originated on SOFR or a few loans being on SOFR. As some companies, as some borrowers say, you know what, I don't want this risk of trying to jam my amendment through or my hardwired through um, at or cessation. So I think that's a slow start, but at some point we will hit a point where there are five public deals that are SOFR based. And once we're in a situation where there are five public deals that are SOFR based, I think then that could flip and start triggering mini loans that have uh, the early opt-in trigger. As that flips and triggers a lot of loans that have an early opt-in trigger, then you could see all of a sudden a flurry of loans coming out using the early opt-in trigger, using an expedited amendment to flip to SOFR, maybe third quarter of the year, have this big domino effect. That domino effect then might feed back into a feedback loop into CLOs that could potentially flip CLOs at that point as well. Then I think we probably end up in a quiet period for a few more months, and then we hit labor cessation at year end, and then everything else that hadn't flipped flips then. What I am hoping is enough stuff flips and changes in the interim, that we can manage the flow and the process at LIBOR cessation. That is how I'm hoping the process plays out.
0: I think we could then call it the positive domino effect. What related concept, though, is the spread adjustment? How do you think that fits into the transition and what effect does it have?
1: Sure. Well, the spread adjustment's interesting. It's not nearly as mysterious as folks think. Basically, LIBOR is a credit risky rate. SOFR is a risk-free rate. So there should be a spread differential between LIBOR and SOFR. We have actually built in the spread adjustment into loans, CLOs, and all other products that fall back from LIBOR to SOFR. What it is, what all the asset classes are going to be using is what's called the five-year historical median difference between LIBOR and SOFR. And, in fact, ISDA is already publishing this number. Bloomberg's publishing this number for ISDA. You can go on a screen. You can see it daily for each tenor pair. So, like, three-month LIBOR to three-month SOFR, one-month LIBOR to one-month SOFR, et cetera. You can see that right now. Um, what is likely to happen is at some point next year, the FCA is going to say LIBOR will be non-representative at the end of 2021. So that will probably happen at some point next year. When that happens, that spread adjustment will freeze. That will be the spread adjustment for all contracts that fall back from LIBOR to SOFR. So we, will, we can see that spread adjustment on an indicative basis now. We should have that final spread adjustment well before LIBOR cessation. At that point, you know, as we have loans that start flipping to SOFR, you've got the spread adjustment. It's out there. It's already frozen and fixed. So you know the economics of what you're going to be flipping to. So I think there's more clarity on the spread adjustment than people actually think there is.
0: So it sounds positive before LIBOR goes away, at least before it's fixed, that, you know, the the variable is there and it's going to track the differential, at least in that five-year median historical basis. But yeah, you know, once it is fixed, do you think we see more so issuances where you, you've kind of priced in any additional risk? If, if for some reason there's a, a market disruption that causes it to maybe be a few basis points shy of where the market would hope it would be, um, are there other techniques that could be used, or or do you think you know the fallback transition will all go well and and everyone will be happy?
1: Well, no one's far happy. I definitely have an under on that one. No, I think there will be noise. I don't know that people are going to price in the mechanic of, oh, well, the five-year historical median is higher or lower than where we are at LIBOR cessation. Um, I don't know if there's going to – I mean, there are going to be people that get paid more, and there are going to be people that were paid less just because of where that spread adjustment is. I think that is true. Uh, the spread adjustment is simply trying to reduce the economic transfer, but there will be some economic transfer. Will the market price it in or put a topper on it or a floor or a cap or something like that? I don't know. I think that will depend on sort of supply demand dynamics at the end of the day. Um, I've certainly seen in the loan space, uh, supply demand dynamics tend to trump ideology. So we'll see, we'll see how that plays out.
0: Well, appreciate your time. This has been a very insightful discussion. Hopefully our listeners think the same. Really appreciate your time.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please check out our LiborCast channel to hear other insightful discussions with market and industry leaders, including regulators, trade associations, and market participants about the work ahead in the Libor transition process. Thanks for listening and have a great day.